Hey, it's Brandon Laws. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Today's bonus episode is brought to you by the Gresham, Oregon Chamber of Commerce and their Work Ready program. There's a link in the show notes. Go check them out. All right. As I mentioned, it's a bonus episode, and I have guest host Al Nodarse having a conversation with Kendall Miller, the president of Interlochen. They're based out of Oregon. Hope you enjoy the conversation. I really enjoy these CEO conversations because we're talking at a high level in most cases, but uh, whether it's theory or best practices, and then we get to have these CEO conversations about people who are actually putting these things into practice and trying, failing, iterating, having success. We're here for all of it. So enjoy the conversation with Kendall Miller. Hi there, this is Al Nodarse with Transform Your Workplace. And this week we have Kendall Moore, who is the president of Interlochen Incorporated. How are you doing, Kendall? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining our podcast here, Kendall. So for those who don't know what Interlochen is all about, why don't you tell us about your business? So Interlochen is a site and utility excavation company. We primarily work in the Portland metro area. We work for general contractors on site development projects where they're going to be building a commercial building or apartment complex or mixed-use type buildings. And we also work for a lot of different municipalities in the area. City of Portland is our big one of our big hitters. We do street work for utility projects for parks projects, the different bureaus within the city of Portland. Got it. And how long have you guys been in business? We have been in business since 2004. So since 2004, and how many employees? We have about 25 employees that sometimes will fluctuate and hit around 30, but we have about five people, six people in the office, and then our field team fluctuates depending on the season. We're busy year we do year-round work. We don't shut down during the winter or anything like that, but sometimes in the summer when we get real busy, we have to add a few team. Got it. And when you guys started in 2004, did you found the company or did you have some partners? How did that look? In 2004, I founded the company on my own. My dad and my uncle, they were all in construction, underground utility construction as well. And they were bigger commercial excavation contractors. And I knew that there was a niche market, maybe not a niche, but I could find my own way doing some residential excavation, sewer repairs, and that kind of thing. And so I saw an opportunity, and with their advice and some help, a little help along the way, I started interlocking. Got it. So you started on the residential side, but I'm assuming now that you guys probably do more commercial than residential, or is that a pretty good balance? You know, we don't do really single-family residential anymore. We probably stopped doing that maybe six or seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And now we only do larger, we'll do like a sewer extension for a, a residence. Like if they are not near a sewer line, we'll uh, install main line and create access for them to the utility. But typically 99% of our work is all commercial or for larger municipal projects. 
One of the things that intrigued me and why I wanted to talk to you was because, first of all, you're a woman-owned business, and number two is you're in the trades, which typically is very male-dominant. So tell me about that. How do you navigate through that? I've always been a tomboy, so I don't know that if helps. that has yeah helped me along the way. I never had a problem getting my hands dirty or playing sports or doing any of those things. I in high school, did all the shop classes that I could do. So I was always interested in, I guess, construction and that type of thing. But being a woman in the construction industry is sometimes challenging, but I think that any line of work is challenging. And I have a lot of support around me, and I have a lot of support within my industry. That's one thing that we would like to get more females and involved in is in the construction industry, and we're making strides. You see it more in, I guess, an office setting for project managers and project engineers and office staff people that are female, but there's not very many of us out in the field. And I would love to see more for sure. Yeah. And I find it interesting that when you were younger, you were into the shop classes and stuff like that. How much of that do you think is just the way you're wired versus I have family that was in the business, so you had a natural inclination to, to want to get your hands dirty and be curious? Probably a little both. I didn't take shop class because my dad owned a construction business or anything mm -hmm. like that. He took it because I wanted to know how to rebuild a small engine or make a bread box for my mom, and which, I don't know, it's just that kind of hands-on activity and work was always interesting to me. I, and granted, I wasn't, I didn't work in the field. When I started my business, I hired a team of field people to help. I have gone out to the job site and done very minimal hands-on work. So I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I primarily have grounded out in the office, so to speak. But that's where you find your best role if, is, and I think that's one of the keys in a CEO at a company is know where you best can contribute as a company. Yeah, for sure. I did want to ask you, because being that you're woman-owned and minority-owned, do you find that is helpful when it comes to getting contracts, whether it be with the city of Portland or some of the bidding that you do? Yeah, so we're a women-owned firm, and we that does help us have opportunity to get access to contracts that potentially other larger non-minority or women-owned firms can have access to. So that, that is helpful. And then also on larger projects for the city of Portland, there is... There's goals. So there's a 20%. So if you subcontract out any part of your prime contract, you are encouraged to include 20% minority women or emerging small businesses in your... They take a pretty hard look at it, so they call it a goal, but it's definitely something that is enforced. And that definitely has helped us get work as a sub. And that's... We're held to the same standard, though, on, on some of the set-aside projects that are out there just for MWESBs, mm -hmm. minority women and emerging small businesses. So... We also have to provide opportunities for minority women and emerging small businesses, you know, when we sub out. So if we have a saw cutter out there, or we have a plumber or a paver or a concrete subcontractor, we have to outreach to those types of firms as well. Got it. And do you guys mainly, are you typically the prime or are you sometimes like you have a, you're a sub in acting? What's the mix and percentage of those? Yeah, we are. We like to be the prime better. I don't know what contractor probably doesn't like to be the prime right. better. You get into more say in your own schedule. Mm -hmm. We typically do have better margin on prime 
Hopefully the prime contractor as well. When you're the sub, sometimes you get schedule doesn't work out quite right because you're under somebody else. But I'd say that we're probably 70% the prime contractor and 30%, 30 to 40% the sub, depending on the year and depending on the projects that are out there to bid. We have to bid on the work and go after the work that's available to bid. Sometimes that that flexes one way or the other. Got it. And as far as your mix of business, would you say a lot of it is municipalities and some of these large utilities, if you will? If you were to divide the pie up, what the percentage makeup is of your business? Yeah, we. it's probably about the same. Probably about 70% is for municipalities and 30 to 40. 60 to 70% is we're the prime and we're working for municipalities and 30 to 40% of our work, we're a sub and we're working for a general contractor on a private project. Got it. So when you guys first started getting at the municipality side, I could imagine that'd be a daunting thing. It's like learning a different language. So how did you navigate through that? You're telling me. They say it's a joke in the industry. If you can work for the city of Portland, you can work for anybody. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of requirements that you have to be aware of and comply with. And once you get that down, it's all good. You've done it a few times and you know the drill. It's good work. It's daunting at first, but once you get a few jobs under your belt, just get right with it, you know. But I'm assuming that some of these contracts are probably pretty big ones too. So sometimes you have a lot of eggs in just a couple of baskets. So do you try to mix it up so you're not too dependent on either a few customers or contracts? Yeah, we do try to diversify our client base. But again, like I said, we have to bid on what's available to bid. So if only one bureau at the city of Portland or one, some of these other smaller outlying municipalities like city of Gresham or Leswego or other, they don't have work to bid. We have to bid where the work, what work is out there is available. Got it. And when COVID hit, did that have an impact on your business? Yeah, I think that probably every business impacted. We were fortunate to be able to keep working because primarily most of our work is outside, right? So we were in enclosed confined spaces. We instituted the recommendations that different municipalities had and the CDC and our guys were able to pretty much work through being pandemic. Our office, we shifted gears and went remote. We had one office staff person that came in and then everybody else pretty much worked remotely. We were all set up for remote work prior to the pandemic just because making way for... I was on maternity leave right before the pandemic hit, so I was completely ready to work remotely. I was already set up because of that. And then my project manager and estimators, they all occasionally would have to work from home if they were sick or or whatever, weren't feeling well or had to stay home to take care of a kid or something like that. So they, everybody was already really set up for it, but it was, it did affect us. And I'd say some of the biggest challenges has been following all the guidelines, keeping up with all the guidelines, keeping my team safe, Mm -hmm. making sure everybody feels confident that we're taking it seriously, balancing everybody's needs properly. So that's another thing that has affected us. And then some of the work did slow down. I feel like just when people are working from home, some of that work that was planned to go out for bid didn't because it just slowed down that pipeline a little bit. We're on the other side of it now and things, we stay busy the whole time, but it did, it's just harder to communicate when everybody is working remotely. You're not able to gather to have meetings together face-to-face 
to flesh out issues or the Zoom meetings and or remote meetings at first was for everybody because people weren't up to speed on that. Right. But now people are used to it. And I think we're, like I said, where I think we're on the other side and things are getting better. Yeah, we've all gotten used to it for sure. And yeah. from a business standpoint, though, it sounds it did affect you, no doubt about it. But like you said, a lot of it was just logistics and communications and things like that. But it sounds like from a business revenue standpoint, it didn't dramatically impact your business. So would you say it did? A small percentage. Got it. We had revenue decrease, but not dramatically. I could complain about what did decrease, right? <laughs> but compared to what others experienced, it was just nothing. I can't imagine being a business owner that had customers, right? That was their lifeblood that they had to come in like a restaurant or a coffee shop or anything oh, yeah. like that. And my goodness, that would have been just terrible. We were super, super fortunate to be able to make a switch on the fly to remote work and keep my guys and gals in the pretty much working full time. So I feel super fortunate. Just a little bit of complaints on the, the downturn in our revenue. Yeah, yeah. But no, but you fared better than most, which is great. I'd like to come yeah. back to the woman-owned business thing because we have some female entrepreneurs that are out there, I'm sure, and some aspiring ones. And having that edge, and I know it's not a crutch, you still have to, like you said, from a compliance standpoint, you still held to the same standards. But how do you go about marketing yourself? Because if you're, there has to be an awareness level. So how do you go out there and let folks know, A, not only that you're out there, but that you do great work? We don't do a ton of marketing, honestly. Mm. I would say that the relationships that we've developed and built with some of our general contractors and definitely the municipalities that we work with just continuing to provide that great communication piece, uh, providing a great work product and not being afraid to go after more work and meet new people and go to those networking events. I would say that's the marketing that we do for ourselves. It's not like a whole lot of advertising outside of that. It's just, I can't count how many networking events that I went to in the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. I don't have as much time for them now and it's, we're more established and have a really great client base that I don't have to go to those as much, but any kind of meet and greet for a general contractor, or even if I knew that the project was way over my skis and I was like, maybe only could have an opportunity to do a small amount of work when we were a lot little, smaller business, mm -hmm. I still went to them. Because developing those relationships with those project managers, you never know where that project manager is going to end up. Maybe they're at a big company right now that's doing a $20 million job that you probably aren't going to have any access to. But maybe in a year or two and you've grown your business, they're going to work for a smaller firm that has a smaller opportunity for you. So developing those relationships and making inroads with some of those at those types of events, that's the kind of marketing that has helped us. It makes a lot of sense. You build those deep-rooted relationships, you do great work, and you don't have to over-market yourself. So it sounds like you guys have been very good about that. How do you go about competing with, because you know, I see it as a David and Goliath thing, and I know there's a lot of folks that do what you do that are smaller, but you've got a lot of these big boys, if you will, too. How do you separate yourself and differentiate yourself from a service standpoint to make sure that you get that edge? Because sometimes they don't pay attention to the little one. A lot of the work that we do is low bid, right? So they're probably not looking at, from a, for municipalities, it's all low bid. So if you don't have the lowest bid, it doesn't matter who you are, how big you are, whatever. If you have the lowest number and can bond the job and all have all your paperwork in order, you can 
you're doing the project, right? I get there is some of I s- suppose when you're working with a general contractor and they have maybe a couple different excavation quotes in their hand, they might go with low bid. They might go with you if your number's a little higher because they've worked with you in the past. It's I'd say that most of our work is just obtained by low bid. Got it. So just having that that sharp tool and making sure that your price is low yeah. enough. But by the same token, you don't want to just be low bid and have your margins stink, if you will. So how do you balance that? Yeah, you have to always keep your pencil sharp. But if you're not low bid, you can't only do the job for what you think you can do it for, not what your competitor thinks they can do it for. You can't always just go for low the lowest number or try to cut your, your margin too much. You have to do what you can do it for. And eventually it'll come around because your competitor might get a full backlog and then their numbers become a little bit more lucrative for them, right? And so their pricing goes up and then your pricing maybe comes gets a little tighter. So you just are always having to balance. It's a stressful position, I'm sure, for my estimators to be in at some points when we're hungry for work and we have to cut our margin a little bit or maybe figure out the best way to maximize our opportunity on the project. It's just, it's definitely a balancing act. But it sounds like sometimes you also have to be able to say no, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the hardest thing. Yeah, especially if you have a relationship. Yeah, not every project is perfect. It takes the same amount of effort and startup and office power to get $200,000 project started as it does a $2 million project. That sounds crazy. The amount of startup and effort and stuff to get it all done is, you got to say sometimes no to some of those smaller opportunities that just aren't really for you or don't fit in your schedule, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think over time and experience, you learn what that algorithm is to figure out what's going to work, what doesn't. So let me ask you this. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. We frequently take, we have a backlog number that we like to keep. And so we're always looking at our work in progress and what we have out there in front of us. And we'll get more competitive on maybe a job that is more specific to our expertise or whatever our backlog small right or we'll go after a job or if our backlog's big but we'll maybe go after a job that we don't have as much experience on or try to expand our horizons if we have a small backlog and we really need to fill the schedule so it's definitely a balancing act we're always looking at those all the different factors that we're evaluating to keep us competitive and keep us busy got it So let's talk about the current business climate because we're hearing rumblings about a recession and so forth. And I would suspect that your business would be one of the first ones to start seeing some of that if the municipalities are starting to cut back and so forth. Have you seen any indicators yet? No. I would say that private work has slowed down a little bit because it's harder for developers and general for financing those bigger projects, private money. But typically when the that kind of thing happens. There's more municipal work that gets put out to bid. So yes, I do see a slowdown to some degree, but I think that the way we can flex back and forth between private work and public work, we will be able to weather the storm. Okay. We're pretty conservative as far as taking risk or we're in a good position. So if the economy does take a little downturn, we'll probably, I would think that we will be okay. That's good to hear. 
Let's take a look back here. I know you mentioned when you were in school, you know, how you like to take the shop classes and things like that. And your dad was in the business and so forth. But when you were younger, did you aspire to do something else? What did you think you were going to do when you got out of high school? After I got out of high school, I went down to Oregon State and that's where I got my business degree from. Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. After I graduated college, I interviewed at a few different more corporate businesses. I ended up at a bank. And that just was not for me. That dynamic was not, I did not enjoy it whatsoever. And so I took an opportunity to start working for my dad's small family business, a couple years out of college, and just worked in the office for him doing kind of anything that was available for me to do or what they needed help with. And then I started doing some project management and project engineering and, and was more involved with the project side. And I just, I loved it. And that seeing something, seeing a project start from the ground up is pretty special. Not everybody gets to see that kind of stuff. Most of the time, nobody sees it at all unless you're actually on the project. So mm -hmm. that just was, it grabbed a hold of me and I just wanted more. And so started doing small little residential projects on my own. But it's interesting because it sounds to me like, even though your dad was in the business and you like getting your hands dirty, dots had not been connected for you. And it's almost like you had to have this epiphany, for lack of a better word, when you work for this bank where you knew what you didn't want to realize that you'd gravitate back to the business. But did your dad ever think that you'd come into the business when you were younger? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and I love to, to share those kind of stories because I think a lot of younger generation folks, they think that we have this incredibly direct linear path on what we want to do. And we, rarely that's the case. Usually there's a lot of U-turns and lefts and rights to get where you want and so forth. But that's really neat how you found yourself right back where, not exactly where you were, you've taken the business to a whole different level. But let's talk yeah. about that. As far as corporate culture, there's things that you learned from your father and so forth and started there, but now it's your business and so forth. So how do you evolve there? I just, I want Interlochen to be a place where people enjoy coming to work every day. Everybody's ideas are you know, considered and a fun place to work. We had, I used to bring my dog in, so I called her the office mascot and she would walk over to everybody and greet them in the morning. And I just, I want our business to be somewhere that people want to turn into their home, right? That they want to stay for a long time. I don't want my business to be something that somebody uses as a stepping stone for some other next bigger company. I'm trying to develop a family mm -hmm. here. And I think that's probably not too far off from what my other people that my family members that are in the industry feel too. That's important to us. Family's super important to us. And in my dad's business and then in my uncle's business and my business, I think that key ingredient of treating your clients and your employees like family and bringing them in fold and showing them the interlocking way, that's the tightness and the close-knit group of coworkers that I want to have around me and part of our team. I don't think that's gone too far from, from I guess, my roots, but I definitely want to keep that feeling. Even if we grow big, I want to be a small little family-owned. I want to have that, that feeling of being this tight-knit little family, even if we blow up to 
100, 200 employees. I want people to feel like they're valued here. That's a wonderful sentiment. It kind of reminds me of Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks. He said, you've got your work and you have your home, your family, and we're bridged between the two where you're trying to bridge both of them together, which I think is lovely. And there's no reason you can't do both. You mentioned earlier, and I also know that you're on the uh, the board for the Gresham Barlow Education Foundation. How do we get girls more engaged, not just in the trades, but in entrepreneurship? Yeah, I'm not on the foundation board anymore. I had to I had to give that up as one of my duties. But yeah, my time there was, and I did appreciate it. Definitely, we have to do a better job of getting kids interested in the trades earlier. It doesn't start in high school, really. It starts before that. It doesn't start in college either. It doesn't start when you're ready to start your career. That's not when a person becomes interested in construction. A person becomes interested in construction when they're four or five and six years old and their parents take them to a dozer day event where oh, they get so to awesome. climb onto a piece of equipment and see a huge excavator. My son, he's three and a half, and he just goes comes unglued when we drive by a construction site. Did I subconsciously? ingrain that into his brain somehow he's been to a few of my construction sites but really he's seen more construction you know equipment out there just driving around town seeing construction going on and the books and stuff that i read him so he just that that interest i think is really something that needs to be presented to kids at a younger age at at those dozer day events, at different different events that you can get a kid exposed to something like that. Yeah, I think that's so important because what I've found is that the educators, you know, they all have a master's degree, but they don't necessarily know a lot of people in the trades. And we've told kids, and you have a degree and I do too, but we know that 65% of folks out there aren't going to get one. So there's other paths. And whether it be the dozer day, whether it be tours, shop days, things like that, I think that the sooner we can expose kids. And I love what you said, that you don't decide what you want to do when you're ready to do your career. Usually there's something else that sparks that at a very young age. So how could we connect those dots for girls, say, in particular? What would you recommend? I, that's hard to say. There's just got to be, I think that our community could benefit from more events that are geared towards younger kids. I was just at an event the other night. It was mainly women in construction and the keynote speaker, gosh, I can't remember her name, but she was talking about this program that she had run that was a girls build program and she runs them kind of all over the country. And I was so inspired and I'm like, gosh, we need something like that around this Portland metro area. I think that would be so awesome to get girls and young any really young kid involved in something like that where they built birdhouses and they did small community projects and she had this the that was totally set up almost like a high school shop class but it was for little kids and it was I was inspired and I would love to see some more of those types of girls build projects out there that would just be fantastic and figure out a way for me to really actually get involved would be something that would be super rewarding. Yeah, I think we need that. So when you say young, are, are you thinking fourth, fifth, sixth grade? And we're oh, yeah. Before junior high, I agree with you there. Elementary school, pretty much. Yeah, and if you look at Western Europe, they actually do a pretty good job. They've got paths for the trades, and the trades are seen so differently there. You could have a plumber in Germany live right next to a doctor, and they don't see each other any differently. Or here, I think society's kind of said, okay, either you go to college or you work with your hands. And there's a lot of money, and a lot of kids 
don't want to be in a cubicle either. They'd rather work with their hands. Yeah. Yeah. And then once kids get to that high school age, there needs to be some opportunities and influence that an understanding from counselors that not every kid is cut out to go to college, right? College isn't the only degree out there. Like right now, my company's trying to hire a mechanic, for example. We can't find a mechanic to save our lives because not any young people are interested in being coming a mechanic. There aren't any out there that are looking for jobs. They're all like starting to retire or already have a really great job and aren't going to move companies, right? There's just not any new blood coming into the system. It's just, and you talk to my equipment dealers that are in the area, they have the same problem getting equipment techs and that kind of thing. And that's something that that would be awesome for kids to get into. Oh, yeah. And just from a different perspective of a trade that really touches my business that we would totally love to see more participation, more people getting involved in. It's just no, I don't know what the shift in America has changed. Like high schools eliminated these shop programs. That's those need to be robust and need community support and need to be operating. They and counselors need to understand that I have laborers that work prevailing wage jobs and maybe they don't have hardly any experience. I'm not saying maybe somebody right out of high school, potentially, right? The right kind of person. They make like over $100,000 in their first year of working. I don't think people understand that. No, they don't. They don't they don't get that and that's the thing that's crazy. I remember being on an OBI webinar and they were talking about even if you have a degree, an undergrad or grad degree, typically you're making more, like 30% more if you're in the trades or manufacturing. So it's that exposure that has to happen and and every and industry. Tons, yeah. And there's tons of opportunity for upward mobility. It's not, okay, I'm just going to be a construction laborer for the rest of my life. No, right. there's just so much opportunity for growth and you could start working in the field and then move into an office, more into project management or estimating. There's just so much opportunity out there in construction right now. It's a growing business. We still, I don't know what the figure is, but there's not enough people getting into the trades right now to no. fulfill all the boomers that are leaving. We have a huge workforce deficit coming our way, and that's one of the biggest challenges that we have. Yeah, it our- is. And you're not alone. I've talked to people in the automotive industry, electrical, you, every single trade out there, they're really struggling with this and the aging of their employees. And it's going to be a real challenge over time. So when you look at the future, I'm curious, what are your long-term goals? Where would you like to see the company in the next five or 10 years? Oh, I don't know. People say, oh, don't you want your company to get bigger and grow? And sometimes I say, yeah, that would be nice. But the size we are right now, it's pretty manageable. It's it's a lot of fun. It's this close-knit team, like I mentioned before. I'd say that we probably will still be doing projects in the Portland metro area. We won't get too far out of this part of the world, but larger projects would be awesome to get some opportunity at doing some larger work, adding a few more people into the office, getting some more experience on different, like bigger work. I would be, I don't really have a great answer for you. I think you've answered it. Continuing to do what we're doing right now and, and just doing it better. I don't need to grow big to feel successful or to feel accomplished. 
Yeah, I think you answered that earlier. My take is that, okay, you're not growing for the sake of growth. It's to do things better, but it comes back to that family dynamics and having this great culture and great people. And that's enough. It really is. Yes, so your GNA and costs go up. So over time, you got to bring in a little bit more revenue to cover that. Um, but I love the way you're thinking because sometimes we've all seen it where folks that just want to grow for the sake of growth, then a lot of what you've built will start to crumble and fall apart. I Yeah, I'd like to see some just... Like I said, we're a conservative company as far as growth. I don't want to just start going crazy and then just lose control. And I'm not a, like trying to say I'm a control freak. I just want it to be successful. I don't want to grow too big and fail, right? I want to take measured, calculated steps in the right direction. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. Gosh, for the younger generation, they don't even know what Sears and Montgomery Wards are. And look how big they were. And Toys R Us, there's been... So many too big to fail examples out there and so forth. Wow. Kendall, it's been great talking to you. And this is really inspiring. I can tell you're very passionate about helping that younger generation. And I have no doubt that you're going to continue to influence folks there. So any final thoughts, any seeds that you want to plant? Oh, gosh. I just don't ever give up on it. If that's your dream to be in construction, you just, you do you. I'm writing that down. You do you. I love it. That's fantastic. Super. Kendall, I really appreciate your time. I think there's some great color that you've added to the picture. Love your story. Love what you guys have built. And I want to wish you guys nothing but the success. I have no doubt you guys will continue to succeed. So thanks for being on our podcast. Oh, of course. Thank you, Al. I appreciate it. Thanks. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. ZenMHR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.